just going to read the first eight verses this morning. And here we are embarking now on our studies in Mark. We're going to work verse by verse, uh, Lord willing, um, until we get close to the end. We're going to take a break this time, but we'll explain that to you as the summer progresses. Okay. Mark chapter 1, let's hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the peoples of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together, please. May God bless the reading of his word this morning and give us understanding of it. Father, no list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Amen. Well, it shouldn't surprise most of us that we are all, each of us, hardwired for self-justification. Our DNA, our default, or if you like, one of the effects of the fall on humanity in the garden is the sin of self-justification. Wanting to justify ourselves before God and others in any way it might be. Good works large gifts, moral stance, favorable comparisons with others, whatever it is, self-justification, which is one of the reasons the Bible is written in the way in which it is written. Because the Bible, as we've been learning, sets before us plainly again and again the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, Christ must be preached to save the world And Christ must be preached to stabilize, preserve, and call the church of Jesus Christ to action. Paul said it best, we preach Christ to the Colossians. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories, Peter said, 2 Peter 1.16. No, we preach Christ. We preach Christ and not ourselves, 2 Corinthians 4.5. And in this... Do you understand this? The preaching of Christ is gospel-saturated. The other, the preaching of ourselves, is rooted in just good advice with a few hand-picked scriptures to help build your case. And good advice has merits, certainly. But it's not preaching Christ. Rather, it's preaching some advice. And that is not the same as preaching Christ. 
So it should be no small wonder to us then as we think these things through, for example, any time, any time the Apostle Paul says anything about his morality to the churches, what does he say? Well, this is what he says, Ephesians 3.8. Although I'm less than the least of all apostles, 1 Corinthians 15.9, I am the least of all apostles. Ephesians 3.8 actually says, I'm, the le- I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people. And then 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the worst of all sinners. That's Paul the apostle. In other words, he says, I am the last person you would want to take some advice from. Just look at me. Which is why Paul would never preach advice sermons. But he ties everything he says to the cross of Christ. He has to. Because he says he's the worst of all sinners. Those of you who took home groups. I hope you figured that out when it came to the moral instruction in Ephesians 4 and 5. That every reason that Paul gave us why we should obey had nothing to do with ourselves. Had everything to do with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and the community of faith. So here's a formula for you. The worst sinner I know I am, the more gospel I will give. The less aware of my sin... The more advice I'll give, the how-to talks, and you can do better talks. And loved ones, Paul follows every one of those scriptures that I just read to you about his deficiencies. He follows on this every time. And you can go check your Bibles and make sure I'm telling you the truth. But the grace of God was poured out on me abundantly. In effect, he says, see, this is what Christ did for me by his suffering and death on the cross. It wasn't me. It wasn't my ferocious commitment to the cause. It wasn't that I finally got serious about religion. No, it was God's unmerited favor. It was his free grace given to me in spite of me. And everything then hangs on the work of Christ in the gospel. Now, please get this. It wasn't Paul ever saying, well, you know, I just got so hungry for God. And that's what turned the key. No, that's internet talk. That's, uh, what is it, fake news? That's fake theology. Because if the cause was Paul's hunger, if that is what turned the key, then what? Well, what he said last time, remember those of you who were here, Galatians 6.14, his only boast is in Christ crucified. If that was the case, if his hunger turned the key, then what he said in Galatians 6.14 couldn't be true. At least not completely true. Therefore, loved ones, I want you to think with me. The very first verse, if your Bible's open, you see this. The verse, the gospel according to Mark, helps make my point. It's the thematic statement of the whole book. So call it the controlling idea. Call it the theme line. Call it the melody line. But whatever you call it, know this. This verse, in one sentence, sets before us the entire message of this gospel according to Mark. In other words, verse 1 is the melody line of every sermon which comes out of this book. Now please get that. It is the melody line of every sermon which comes out of this book. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Veer from that statement as you study the book, as you hear the book taught, preached, you've gone off course in this gospel, and you miss the intent. And the gospel, this good news that Mark will teach us, is essentially this. 
despite the fact that we cannot redeem ourselves, we cannot fix ourselves, despite even in our best days, we're still riddled in sin. God in his mercy sends his son Jesus, who's the Messiah, on our behalf to tell us there is a way of forgiveness for the worst of sinners. Which takes us back to our opening thought about Christ must be preached to save the world. And you bet we're going to add Christ must be preached to stabilize the church, to preserve the church, and to call church, Christ's church to action. Because you see, the rescue that we need only comes one way. Through the substitutionary ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So you see, loved ones, this is why the Bible has to be written and given. Is. This is to be real frank with you, this is why expository preaching is so hard. Because the Bible actually says, no, it actually heralds, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You look at him and you look away from yourself. Now, I've read this quote from Spurgeon at least three times since I've been here. It's time for the quote again. It comes from his morning um, devotion, June 28th. He says this, the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from ourself, but to Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's not your hold of Christ that saves you, it's Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that may be the instrument. It's Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you're grasping Christ, but look to Christ. Don't look to your hope, but look to Christ, the source of your hope. Look, don't, don't look to your faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. You'll never find happiness by looking at your prayers, your doings, your feelings. It is what Christ is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If you would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merit, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you wake up in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. He will never fail you. Now, I want to ask you this question. Are we getting this as a congregation? Are we really getting this as a congregation? Or are we still in the mode of leadership principles from Jesus? Discovering the champion in you from the gospel of Mark. Lessons of life from Mark's gospel. Lessons on quality living. Are we past that as a congregation? Or are we still there? Because you see how the latter just, just feeds the flesh? Because... Think, the disciples who were elbow to elbow with Jesus, right? So we'll say it like this. Front row seats, backstage passage to Jesus' three-year leadership conference, right? What Mark will show us about these guys who spent three years elbow to elbow with Jesus, they will, have, they will fail to have faith in Christ when twice comes the storm. They fail to believe Jesus will have the ability to feed the multitudes twice. They fail to understand the, the direct communication of Jesus to them. Uh, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. They rebuke those who bring children to Jesus in order for him to bless them. They fail him at the moment of his greatest need when Jesus is arrested and crucified. So it's graduation day and they blow it and we're never told directly in Mark that the disciples have faith. They keep blowing it. Now keep that in mind. And yet Here's the good news. Christ, the Son of God, He keeps bailing them out. He doesn't abandon them. He keeps on loving them. And many of us, I mean, and I'd be the first one to admit, we have known that kind of love. When we just tank on Jesus, and we know what we deserve, and then here comes Jesus. Do you know this song? 
I'm going to keep on loving you because it's the only thing that I want to do, right? And when, when I said that I loved you, I meant that I loved you forever. And then in, in the Gospel of Mark, there's these minor characters in the eyes of most. So in Mark, these, these minor characters who, if you would, they can't afford tickets to the leadership conference. And they're, they're distant from Jesus. They're not elbow to elbow. But Mark shows us that some of these first meetings, they are aware of their helplessness. They are equally painfully aware of their deviancies and their deficiencies. And yet they demonstrate faith. In such a way that Jesus commends. In other words, they say this to Jesus. You're the only one that can save us. Son of David, have mercy on me. And guess what? Jesus does. He does. Loved ones, modern men and women, by nature, in contemporary society, in or out of the church, are much like the disciples. And they cannot stand feelings or impressions given to others of weakness or deficiencies. We by nature love to give the appearance of strength, of vitality, of industry, of prosperity, of we've made it. We are the greatest. Mark chapter 9 verse 34, the little disciple discussion that they had. However, Mark won't allow us to go there even for a nanosecond because he keeps pointing his readers to Jesus. Mark says, there's your Savior. You keep your eye on him. Let him be your only hope in life and in death. And pick up your cross and follow him. Right? Pick up your cross and follow him. Now, in relation to that last statement, listen carefully. This is a quote from John Stott, 1975. He, he was writing a booklet for a missionary conference, and this is one of the things he says. Nothing hinders evangelism more than the widespread loss of confidence in the truth, the relevance and the power of the gospel. Read that again. Nothing hinders evangelism more than the widespread loss of confidence in the truth, the relevance, and the power of the gospel. And and if the data people were correct, as they gave this year's Easter report, Easter 2017, and the condition of the church in the West, there are some alarming numbers of people in the church who say we don't exactly hold to the gospel that Mark is preaching. Uh, The divinity of Jesus Christ is not believed on. So verse 1 is not on their radar. The exclusivity of Christ. He's the only one can save. Less and less people professing faith in Jesus Christ actually believe that. So you would suspect that being unconvinced of verse 1's message, that they're unwilling to share that message with others. Why would they? Why should they? And this should be a matter of concern for us that we would examine our own hearts, that we would consider ourselves thinking where we are in relation to these things, especially if we have become a member of this church and we made the pledge in our membership to evangelize, to see unbelieving people become committed followers of Christ because loved ones, if we are committed to that pledge that we made as a member, then it becomes incumbent on us To both know the gospel and share it with others. And of course, one of the best ways to do this is to let this gospel (laughs) tell us the gospel. And follow in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Equally then, as we turn to this gospel and we just plunge ourselves into the life of Jesus, into the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus, enabling us then, if you would, to become part and parcel in our thinking in order that we would be able to tell others the good news in our speaking. Do you bear with me just for a second? If all you're getting is advice sermons and you're not getting Jesus stuff, it's going to be really, really hard for you to say, Look how wonderful he is. Because we're always trying to say, look how wonderful I can be. Just give me some advice. Three points. Pretty brief as my sermons go. Number one, big picture. Now, one of the things about Mark is he sets Jesus out as a man on the move. In fact, this gospel is labeled the breathless gospel. And if you have an NIV Bible, maybe a King James, New King James, you'll see the headings there. It it makes the point, the baptism and temptation of Jesus. Jesus drives out the evil spirit. Jesus heals many. Jesus prays. And on and on as you work through the gospel. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is a man on the move. In fact, one of the most important Greek words which Mark uses 42 times is the Greek word euthus which is translated immediately or straight away. Verse 29, if your Bible is open, as soon as they left. And it's meant to give the impression of purposely that the kingdom work is a matter of urgency. Everything else, secondary. So the tone of Mark's gospel is, is breathless. None of this kind of wait, wait, wait. No, it's like, we got to go. Speed, haste, the kingdom work. It's the priority. All worldly cares, tank them. Worldly pleasures, tank them. The the kingdom matters most. Another thing is that Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel. It's the first gospel written as agreed on by most. Not everybody says that, but most do. And it's probably the most evangelistic or mission-minded gospel of the four because Mark leaves us without a large amount of information from the other gospels, but he leaves us with all the vital information that we need to know or a man or woman needs to know if they're going to believe on Jesus. In other words, Mark's gospel would be a great gospel to ask your friends and your neighbors to read. And you should also know that Mark was, was breaking new ground when he writes the gospel. The kind of literature this is and all, it's brand new to the world. Before Mark wrote this, there's nothing really like this writing down the life and ministry of Jesus, not as a biography. It's important that we understand that. It's not even in chronological order. Indeed, none of the Gospels really write as biography. Rather, he's writing to be persuasive. He's writing to win some so that those who read the Gospel he gives may come to believe on Jesus Christ. Which is the reason why, along with the other Gospels, Mark commits a a really uneven portion of the story to the last weeks of Jesus's, his uh, passion and the resurrection. So a third of Mark's gospel is essentially about the last weeks of Jesus's life. Mark wants to get to the cross as, as quick as he can. That's number one. That's the big picture. Point number two, a good question. Now, nowhere in the gospel are we told that it's Mark who actually wrote this gospel. If you read the text through, you'll find what I'm saying is true. So a good question we should ask is, okay, why is it that we believe Mark wrote the gospel and has Mark's name always been on the title page of the gospel? And the answer to that question is in large measure yes. In the earliest documents of the church, we find the name actually John Mark, which is Mark's full name. Mark is his his surname, his last name. 
you get an ancient manuscript, you would see uh, according to John Mark. That's what you'd see on most of the first pages of his gospel. Now, every gospel account, and this is important, is based on eyewitness material. Therefore, it's verifiable material. And what makes that so unique is that the New Testament specifically is so different than all the other holy books because all the other holy books are not like this. They're not verifiable. They're not history. They're not grounded in history. You can't go back to check to see if what they're saying is true. You got to trust them. Mark doesn't say, trust me. Mark says, test me. Let's find out if this is real. And the earliest documents of the church and the church fathers identified then Mark as the writer of the gospel. Now, since, as I said, every gospel is based on eyewitness accounts, the earliest church writings identify the apostle Peter as Mark's source, his eyewitness for Mark's gospel. In other words, Mark relied on Peter to give him the details which enabled him to write the gospel down for the church, of course, and for the world as well. So again, Mark is written, according to church tradition, with Peter just, if you would, whispering in his ear. This is what happened, Mark. Mark's not an apostle. So the authority of Mark's gospel is based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter as he says to Mark, in essence, this is what happened. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. And a good test of this, okay, because this is the thing that shows the unity of the Bible. If you look, for example, in Acts chapter 10, which is one of Peter's sermons that he preached, what you'll find is that the sermon that he preaches which another gospel writer, Luke, records, is essentially the opening chapter of Mark. Now, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a portion of Acts 10 to you. And if your Bible's open, just kind of look at Mark and let's see what I'm saying is true. And I think you'll find that it is. This is what Peter says. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news, the gospel through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, uh, God, Son of God. You know what's happened throughout the province of Judea. Here we go, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. The opening verses that we read, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil, uh, verse 21, because God was with him. And then he goes on to speak of Christ's death. Loved ones, how does Mark begin his gospel? He starts with the divinity of Jesus, then on to the ministry of John, the baptism of John in the Jordan, the anointing of Jesus in his baptism, doing good works, driving out demons, just like Mark's sermon in Acts chapter 10. And that makes sense. Why? Because Peter is Mark's eyewitness. Okay, that's point two. Number one, the big picture, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. A good question, Mark, who's your source? Peter, Mark, why is your name on the gospel? And so on. Last point, some, some things to think about and do. Now, here's what I would ask you to think about, right? In fact, if you could, kind of like in your mind's eye, don't close your eyes because then I think you'll sleep, but just put yourself in the position of the Christians before Mark's gospel was written, specific, specifically in Rome. So in the latter part of the first century in Rome, it's the Lord's Day, okay? And because it's the Lord's Day, Christ's people are assembled together, but not publicly because it has to be privately because they're hiding. They're hiding because Nero is hunting. Nero is the Roman emperor. He's hunting for Christians. And if they're caught, they're going to be arrested and subjected to some kind of Nero-generated psychotic death. 
So the believers in Rome are gathered, not like we are, but they're underneath the city in catacombs, tombs. That's their place of worship. So they're not going to complain about the heat or the cold or the lighting and all that kind of stuff. They're in a tomb surrounded by skeletons and dead bodies. And yet they're worshiping Jesus on the Lord's day as they should. Why the secrecy? Well, about five years after Nero became emperor of Rome, he just changed. Something happened. He became cruel and he became very, very deviant. Deviant in his behavior and certainly deviant in his leadership. The first five years, pretty decent. However, in 59 AD, he becomes wicked. And six years after this, or excuse me, five years after this, 64 AD roughly, a great fire devastated the whole city of Rome. Seven days, seven districts burn, 80% of the city of Rome is destroyed. Now think about that. 80% of the city, city gone. History tells us that it was probably Nero who was behind it all. We can't be entirely sure, but this is what we know for sure. Nero began to blame Christians living in Rome for the burning of Rome. Those who bore the name of Jesus Christ, his exact words, were to be hunted down. No trial, just send out the troops, collect every Christian you could find. They arrest them, and immediately Nero has some, has some Christians dressed in the skin of wild animals onto public display. So what he does is he puts the Christians in, in wild animal clothes, if you would, and he has wild dogs, and they haven't been fed for a while, and they let the Christians loose in the city, and they let the wild dogs loose in the city, and the dogs just take down women and, and men and whole families because the dog thinks that the Christians are prey. So they eat them in full view of the public. Other Christians, Nero would have dipped in pitch or tar and he would set them on fire. And this is what he would do with them. He would take their bodies that were on fire and he would let them bring light to his private gardens in the evening. And if that wasn't enough, as most of you know, Christians were brought into the Colosseum for sport fed to lions as um, entertainment for the crowds. Now you listen carefully, please. It was into that context that Mark's gospel is being written. Mark is writing initially for the church in Rome. The audience is the world, of course, but he's specifically writing to Christians in the church in Rome who are just being swallowed up by all that terrible persecution. So the Christians are seeking to live for Jesus. They're evangelizing Jesus. And because of Jesus, they are being smashed by persecution, buffeted by all kinds of these horrible, psychotic, you know, meet-your-death occasions orchestrated by Nero. And all hell is breaking loose over them. And you see, these people need to know, is all this, all this Jesus Christ stuff true? Is he really the son of God? Is there really a judgment coming? Is it all worth it? We need to know. Because just look at what's taking place here. And there's really not that many of us. And if I fail him in my hour of trial, when the troops come to my door and I say, well, Jesus, I don't really know him. Is there forgiveness for that? And loved ones, I I want you to think with me. One of the means, now please think, one of the means that these dear saints are given, that God the Father determines to send 
to help them is a book, a gospel. There's no signs, no visions, no, I just feel it. No, I'm going to give you a book, and the book's going to be read, and the book's going to be explained. Verse 1, here's what the book is about. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who suffers and dies for sins, even as you're suffering and dying for your relationship with Him. So, okay, let's go back to what we were imagining. It's the Lord's Day. You're in that underground tomb. You're worshiping Jesus. All the horror surrounds you of Nero, and one of the leaders in the church comes with this gospel, the first one. It's the gospel of Mark, and this is what he reads. The beginning of the evangelion, the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, we could really use some good news right about now. You see, loved ones, we are often tempted to come to the gospel record with a kind of a life enhancement mindset. X is going on in my life. I don't like X. I either want it to be improved or removed. And I wonder if Mark's gospel can help me. It doesn't because any honest reader would be able to say that's not what Mark is all about. And so what people do, some may be tempted to go find some Christian resource to boost them or improve them or remove things. Hmm. Mark's readers were not looking for a boost. They were not looking for a life enhancement. They were looking for a rescue. They were looking for rock solid, verifiable truth, which could explain in some measure all the madness around them. So what does Mark, under God, give them? He gives them Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that when trials come, they'll be helped. Now, it's certainly telling in that in our context, generally speaking, people might be tempted to question God because their life and their dreams and their ambitions, they don't quite turn out the way that they had hoped. Here in Mark's gospel, for the original readers, readers, it's life or it's death because of their devotion and obedience to Jesus. And as you think a bit further, Peter, who have we've been saying, he's Mark's source for the gospel. In his own letter, 1 Peter, he's writing to Christians who are also scattered in the five providences, uh, Roman providences of Turkey. Same time period, running because of the same persecution of Nero. Actually, some were just kicked out. So Mark's first audience is, is Christians who are in Rome, suffering. Peter's audience, same time period, Christians who are hiding or been thrown out. Of Rome. And isn't it amazing? I mean, you got to think about this. Who are the people that God is calling to give help to these Christians? Well, one is Peter, who failed Christ before the cross. But he's allowed to preach Christ after the cross. And he's allowed to be the primary source for the church being persecuted in Rome and for the church scattered outside of Rome. It's amazing who God chooses. Peter flat out failed. Failed. Peter writes this to the church, churches scattered, the Christians scattered, 1 Peter 2, 1, to this you were called. This is your calling because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
And of course, Peter would have another moment. And this time, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he would get past that moment. He won't deny Christ. But tradition tells us that he dies in Rome, hung upside down on a cross. That's some things to think about. Finally, quickly, something to do. Now, one of the things I would ask you to do as, you, as you're thinking through this is open up your Bible, begin in Acts, and try to find Mark. Look for this fellow, John Mark. And if you do that, one of the things you're going to find out is Mark lived in Jerusalem in a really big house. He might have been a mama's boy because the big house was actually his mother's house. It was the house where Peter went to after the angel yanked him out of jail. That house was John Mark's mother's house. There was the big prayer meeting. His mother's name was Mary. The house that he lived in might have been, maybe, we're not sure. It might have been where they had the Last Supper. And the man in chapter 14 of Mark who allows uh, the people to yank off his clothes. Remember, insofar as he doesn't want to get arrested. And he's much more afraid of the crowds than he was of God. A fairly human problem. Church tradition says that the naked guy running, that's Mark. And what do you know? Another chosen instrument used by God is a guy, if you would, who tanked on Jesus in a pretty embarrassing way. Mark has a rich cousin named Barnabas. Barnabas at the time had a whole lot going for him. So remember Paul and Barnabas and Mark, they, they go together and they do some missionary work. And guess what happens to Mark? Mark has another gospel meltdown. He abandons the work of Jesus Christ. Barnabas gets mad. Paul gets mad at each other. They split up. But after a good while, the matter is settled. Paul says to Mark, go get him because he's very useful to my ministry. Now let's do this and we're done. Who is Mark writing to? The Mark who failed twice. And who was Mark's source? Peter, who failed big time. Once. At least. He's writing to Christians who are being tempted in the same way. And he's probably writing to Christians who probably had their own meltdown. Right? When the Roman guy, Jesus, yeah, don't know him. Don't know him. Is it not amazing? The kind of people that God uses. Mark's not an Ivy Leaguer. He's not a hero of the faith. I guarantee you there's not going to be any books about Mark's diet and Mark's prayer life and Mark's this and Mark's that. You know, you could become Mark. God picks up people. He puts them in the places of usefulness. And the strength of all this for Mark was not Mark. The strength of this was because Mark encountered Jesus. And he had to come to trust Jesus. And his life was transformed by Jesus. And, and it was this which caused Mark and all who have ever trusted in Jesus to go out and tell people, I've trusted in Jesus. He changed my life. I fail him a lot. May I please tell you about him though? He can change your life too. It's pretty simple, congregation. We, we gather... So we can what? Scatter. That's the way. That's the way. We're not really heroes of the faith. Uh, at least I don't feel like a hero. Most days I feel like Mark. I think that's good. Let's pray. 
Father, as we embark on this study, we sincerely ask, God, for the help of the Holy Spirit in the study time, in the writing time, in the preaching time, in the listening time, in the thinking time, and applying time. May Mark's gospel change our lives forever to the praise of your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.